So is everybody uh, doing well? Surviving? The sun is shining over there. No rain clouds, no thunder. Last night somebody asked what the word Ajahn means. So I gave you the literal answer, means teacher. But Ajahn Chah used to talk about many different kinds of Ajahn. Perhaps the most common one he'd say, Ajahn Mosquito. Because mosquitoes are our teachers as well. But here we don't have many mosquitoes bothering us because they can't come into the hall because of the screens. But we have Ajahn Thunder and Lightning, Ajahn Heavy Rain, Ajahn this and Ajahn that. You probably all have your own Ajahns, don't you? Things or people or situations that teach you something. And Ajahn Chah used to say, well, anybody who's an Ajahn, say if it's a monk who's an Ajahn, your teacher, you always put your hand up in Anjali and show respect. You're grateful, you're thankful for the teaching. So if it's Ajahn Mosquito, you have to be grateful for Ajahn Mosquito teaching you to let go when they annoy you. Or if somebody else is bothering you, they're talking too much or annoying you in some way. They're your Ajahn, so you have to be grateful to that person for teaching you. They're showing you your own attachment, helping you to let go of your own attachment. So if you can think like this, then all the Ajahns, all the things that bring you suffering, all the Ajahns, they're all something you can be grateful for. This one is entitled, Amazing Ajahn. Hmm. May I ask if Ajahn has psychic ears that could hear my alarm clock ringing at 4.30 p.m.? No, I just have ordinary ears. Just we're walking past your car every lap when we're walking on the meditation, so I, I think everyone else could hear it as well. Uh, so, alarm clocks go off at different times, don't they? So, no psychic ears there, just ordinary ears. The best alarm clock I ever heard of was a monk, a friend of mine, a very senior monk now, his first rains retreat spent with Ajahn Chah. He ordained in central Thailand and came up to stay with Ajahn Chah. And he was very, very scared of Ajahn Chah. Because Ajahn Chah was a very powerful presence. Could be quite fierce, quite direct with the monks. Everyone was sure he could read their minds. He knew what they were doing, what they were up to all the time. So they're all very scared of him. 
and this monk, the day before the rains retreat started, Ajahn Chah called him over and said, I'm going to give you a very important job, this rains retreat. It carries a lot of responsibility. You better not muck it up. He's only brand new monk. Said so you're going to ring the bell for the morning meditation. And the morning bell at Wobbapong goes, I think about five to three in AM. It's a very loud bell and you can hear it for many miles around. And that's what calls all the monks and the nuns and all the lay visitors to get up and come to meditation and chanting. So that monk was petrified because in those days there weren't many alarm clocks. I'm not sure whether he had an alarm clock. I don't think he did because they were very hard to come by. And this is like 35, 40 years ago. So all night he was really worried so he couldn't sleep a wink. So he's in his kuti worrying, I'd better not miss the time. He had a clock, but I don't think he had an alarm clock. I can't miss the time, I can't miss 3 a.m. I've got to get up on time, I've got to get up. So he worried himself all through the night. So at about 2.30, he was so tired, he fell asleep. 2.30 a.m. The very thing he dreaded happened because it kept himself awake so long. He was so exhausted, he fell asleep. And at 5 to 3, he was awoken hearing Ajahn Chah's voice very loud many times in his ear saying, wake up, wake up, get up, get up. <laughs> Except for when he opened his eyes, Ajahn Chah wasn't there. Ajahn Chah was way away in his own kuti. It was just a dream. But who knows? That monk is sure it was Ajahn Chah using his psychic powers <laughs> as an alarm clock. So. Anyway, he didn't muck up and apparently he rang the bell on time every day for the three months. And Jen, why are we allowed to have cheese and chocolate at 5 p.m.? Isn't that cheating? You don't have to have it. Whoever asks this question, you don't have to have it. You will have it, you don't have to have it. There are those things that the Buddha allowed according to the Vinaya. You see, you're living in a monastery now, so everything happens according to the Dhamma Vinaya, the monastic routine for monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen the rules, the regulations, and we have different classes of what we call medicinal requisites. So medicines for illness and for easing dukkha painful feelings, feelings of tiredness, illness, and so on, which we can have afternoon. So some classes are lifetime medicines, so something like salt is considered a lifetime medicine. We can have that any time. Uh, if you're on eight precepts or a Buddhist monk, novice, you can have, you can keep salt, and you can have that any time through your life. 
or something like tea or coffee or herbal teas, uh, vitamins. These are examples of lifetime medicines. Then there's other classes of medicines which are called seven-day medicines. These are things that aren't usually considered as food, sort of fully, fully nutritious food, but are, do have some nutritious value and can be used for giving you an energy, some energy in the evening when you're feeling tired or exhausted or if you have some illness and you need a bit of extra energy, and these medicines can help, but they're not considered sort of staple food. And there's five main ones in this class. There's uh, sugar, honey, ghee, which is like clarified butter, uh, oil, so it might be oil from palm oil or olive oil, those kind of oils. And the last one, which is uh, an unusual one maybe, is tongue is in the modern era, we tend to call it cheese. So cheese, back in the days, the old days in India, uh, we can't be completely sure how they made it, the method that they made it. If you know anything about cheese, there are many kinds of cheeses and ways of making it. But in those days, cheese was considered a medicine and they would give it to sick people and so on. And so the Buddhist and monastic code adopted cheese as one of those medicines. This is why cheese is allowed in the evening. And in the current era, uh, our teachers, Ajahn Man, Ajahn Chah, ate cheese. So we just follow on that tradition. So we can have cheese, although we can't have, say, milk, just ordinary drink a cup of milk or something is not allowed, but cheese is. And chocolate comes, uh, it's a, the cocoa bean is considered a lifetime medicine, like a herbal leaf, a tea, some, any kind of medicinal herb or a tea leaf or coffee bean, cocoa bean are considered lifetime medicines. These are herbal, uh, they do have some medicinal qualities. But once you mix chocolate with sugar, which is what they usually do, it becomes a seven-day medicine because sugar is a seven-day medicine, not a lifetime medicine. So chocolate, dark chocolate, with uh, usually made out of cocoa with uh, sugar, is allowable for, and a monk can keep that for up to seven days. Um, milk chocolate we cannot eat in the evening because it's got milk in it or any chocolate with nuts in we can't eat so it's quite a refined thing the monastic code uh, to do with medicines foods um, we do have some books on this if anyone's really interested I can give you some books you can study up or you can keep asking questions and watching what the monks have and then you learn the idea being that we, the Buddha allowed certain these certain medicines just to stave off feelings of tiredness, uh, or if you're 
falling ill and you need a bit of energy. But he was very strict about not having food afternoon. Even if a monk is ill, he can't eat food in the evening. Even if he's like really struggling in hospital with a very serious illness, we're still not allowed to take food in the evening. The Buddha is quite strict there. There's also one-day medicines, things like fruit juice that's freshly squeezed or sugarcane juice. Um, I think the main reason is because if you keep those for more than a day, they tend to go off. So one reason it's a health thing just to stop monks storing a fruit juice that would go off and become actually toxic or give you a diarrhea or something. Uh, but all fruit juice or sugarcane juice has to be sieved, filtered. We can't have fruit juice with pulp or chunks in it. So that's why you see people offer fruit juice that is uh, without the pulp. Bottles of that, we can have that in the evening. However, these are all allowances, just the general allowance, but each individual also has to consider for themselves what they find beneficial for the practice. And obviously even these uh, minimal allowances for the evening can still become an attachment or an obsession of the mind. Or one could overindulge, one could eat many, many slabs of dark chocolate. Uh, or cheese or what the little novices used to do in Thailand when I was a novice, the little teenagers used to mix up cocoa and they'd mix it in a kettle because you'd have to serve out many monks and novices and they'd put in some cocoa and then they'd put the entire packet of sugar in because they wanted sweet cocoa. So they'd just pour the sugar in, mix it up and you get a very thick sweet cup of cocoa too sweet for many people but the uh, young novices liked it so you can indulge in these things so it's obviously part of your practice is to learn what is the right amount for you in terms of food drinks these medicinal drinks uh, cheese chocolate these things and many monks choose not to have these things or just to have them occasionally or very small amounts and you know they're not they don't indulge in these things because you very quickly come to see the harm of indulging you know if you have too much sugar you get a sugar rush or over time you could probably end up with diabetes or some kind of health issue or just become very fat same with cheese chocolate honey these kind of things you know to indulge in them very quickly you get adverse health effects, you get overstimulation and so on, which will affect your meditation. So it's something you have to look at for yourself, what is the right amount for you. If you're someone who's very sensitive, you know, tea and coffee can be overstimulating. People sometimes when they're trying to stay awake meditating, they drink a cup of strong coffee and then wonder why they think too much. The stimulation leads to lots and lots of thinking. Or can even, one monk told me he used to drink coffee to stay awake late at night and he ended up hallucinating. 
seeing all kinds of images because his mind was overstimulated. So obviously one can indulge in these things. One has to find the right amount. When I think of death, sometimes I feel there is a strong sense of attachment in me, not ready to let go of my body yet. What should I tell myself every day so that externally my heart will understand or accept that this body is not mine or so that eventually my heart will understand or accept that this body is not mine. Well, you partly answered the question, what should I tell myself every day? And we just chanted the reflection. Uh, I am of the nature to die, I have not gone beyond dying. So the Buddha encouraged us to reflect on this every day. So that means to remind ourselves of, of this simple fact. Yes, I will die. It will happen to me, I won't be here forever. So partly it's just remembering the teaching, recollecting it, and then one can use it as a meditation in itself just to recollect death as a theme, the very impermanence of this body, this life, as a way of cutting out a lot of frivolous thinking, unnecessary thinking about different things, a lot of distraction. If you ask anybody who, who's facing the prospect of death, either they're very elderly or they're very sick, they say it, one of the results of that is it makes your mind focus very closely on the present moment because your future is very uncertain. If you're facing death, you just don't know what lies ahead. So it cuts out a lot of worry and thought and uh, distraction brings your mind right to the present moment. Often people say it makes them appreciate the present moment much more because they realize time is running out and then so each moment becomes more valuable. And they, they look back and they say, oh, when I was young or when I was healthy, I didn't realize this and I wasted a lot of time or I was a bit complacent and let time slip by I didn't really value my time. So a wise person, they reflect on the impermanence of life every day and it brings up some energy, some effort for you to do the things you have to do, to do your practice, to do more good in the world, to help yourself, help family and friends and so on. Because you're aware of how limited our time is, it makes you more energetic and there's that famous teaching the Buddha said to Ananda how often do you contemplate death Ananda said well three times a day the Buddha said not enough said, the Buddha contemplates death every in and out breath they're constantly reflecting on the impermanence of this body and mind that sets your goal. Just any time you recollect impermanence, 
recollect death, it helps you to establish mindfulness in the present moment and let go of the mental proliferation and all the daydreams and the distracted states of mind and the, even the stress that we get into. If you recollect death, it cuts through a lot of stress, doesn't it? It brings you back to what's important. And a lot of our stress is about things that are not very important. It also makes you, tends to make you more compassionate because you understand how fragile life is, our own life and the life of others. So you become more sympathetic to others and tend to value life more. When the Buddha compared human life, he said, really in the whole span of existence, it's just like a drop of dew on the grass in the morning. You get the dew and then the sun comes out and after a while the dew drop just evaporates, disappears. He said a human life is a bit like that. It's actually very quick, short. We're not here for very long. And the Buddha was very wise and his mind was very clear. He could see beings are born and die, born and die for many, many lifetimes, innumerable lifetimes. So just one lifetime, very short span. And, and yet we still get caught up into the same kind of suffering. You know, we get, we attach to things, we get caught up in things, we get happy, we get sad. We get angry, we get jealous, we get greedy, we get disappointed. In one lifetime we have all kinds of suffering. Then we die and then we're born again and we do it all over again. As the Buddha looked at that and said, hmm, human beings, all beings in all realms, born, aging, dying, over and over again and often don't really learn the lesson, keep getting, making the same mistakes, keep suffering over and over again. And that's what motivated him to find a way out of that, liberation from greed, anger, delusion. That led him on to Nibbana. Ajahn Mahabua says we shouldn't fear death because the mind doesn't die. And if you look at death, what happens in death, it's only the body that dies, isn't it? The you know, physical body stops working. But the mind doesn't die. That which knows, the quality of knowing doesn't die. Next question. When we do walking meditation, taking quicker steps like we do in the afternoon. Am I walking too quick in the afternoon perhaps? What is the best thing to do? Focus on the breath, focus on the movement of steps or do metta meditation? Please advise. 
you could do all of those. They're all good. Um, for people who do a lot of breath meditation, sometimes it becomes quite natural that even when you get up from your sitting meditation, you walk out of the hall, say, and you start doing walking meditation, your mind might quite naturally keep with the feeling of the in and out breath. And if you're walking meditation, whether walking around or walking back and forth, you often you find your own rhythm where you can still be in aware of your breathing as you're walking. But that tends to be for people who've done it quite a bit. They're quite used to watching the breath, following that feeling. In the beginning, if you were to try to do walking meditation, watch the breath, watch your feet and so on, then it's just like driving, learning to drive a car. You get all confused and probably end up tripping over or something because you're trying to do too much. Watch your breath, watch your feet, all difficult. And the rhythm of your breath, rhythm of your feet, very difficult. It's not something you can really control or force to be a certain way. But if naturally that happens, because you just happen to have done a lot of breathing meditation, and as you're walking back and forth, your mind prefers to focus on the breath, then you can do that. And it can, be, it can become a, a habit, and it's quite peaceful. It's not difficult and confusing or doesn't cause you any problems. You can do that. But if, if it seems too difficult, probably better to just stay with the feet, the movement of your feet rising, touching the ground, the pressure of your feet rising, touching the ground. Um, you can also use a mantra with that, so you can use butho, butho, or you can count your steps. So as we do our walking around here, you can count how many steps it takes to walk around one circle of the monastery, depending on the size of your feet and your body. Some people, maybe 950, some people 1,500, somewhere in between maybe. Or you could do metta meditation. That's also a good, me good meditation to do when walking. So may I be well, may I be free from suffering. You hold that thought in mind. You just relax as you're walking. As I walk, may I be well, may I be free from suffering. Relax your body. Maybe you might center your mind in one part of your body. So either at the feet, or some people when they're walking and they're doing metta meditation, they center their mind in their chest or their heart right here. You're walking slowly up and down. Keep your mind centered on your heart. And when you do that, you keep your heart very cool, very calm. The opposite of when you're angry. You notice if you're angry, you start to get agitation in the heart and the feeling of tension and suffering arises with the anger and it spreads out to the rest of your body. If you're calmly doing walking meditation and you keep your attention here on the chest with the thought, may I be well, may I be free from suffering, very difficult for anger to arise. And just keep this calm mood as you walk back and forth. And once that's very clearly established, then you may send your 
thoughts outwards. So may all beings be well, may all beings be happy and free from suffering. And that probably would be just a general thought, general concept of just sending your mind and your this good feeling out in all directions to all beings. So if you're walking around the monastery, that includes everybody in the monastery, including all the animals and any visitors coming and going. You just quietly wish them all well. If you see a car driving out of the monastery, may they be well, may they reach their destination safely. If someone's just arriving, may they be happy and well while they're in the monastery. If you're walking past somebody's car with their alarm going off, may they be happy, may they find their alarm and so on and you see you see the crow trying to get into the kitchen while we're walking say may the crow not get into the kitchen so that Kun Oi's food is not disturbed may the crow find food elsewhere may it be happy Depends, I guess you can have a variation, can't you, depending on the situation. If you see a bug on the floor, may I not step on this bug? May others not step on this bug? Last night I moved a few frogs. All the rain, the frogs came out, and one frog seemed to be stuck in the middle of the path. I was a bit worried. There was someone driving last night. Oh, get squashed, so I picked him up put him on the side of the road. There's many ways you can practice metta as you're walking. A question in Thai. Tamai prapatan jung bin prayun leo เรียกท่านว่าบางอะไรคะสองพระสองค์ที่นั่งอยู่เบื้องล่างชื่อพระอะไรบ้างสามพระพุทธรูปที่ปากทางเข้าบางอะไรคะทำไมจึงดั้ง
หมือนกำลังแผ่เมตตาให้เรามองแล้วดูแล้วก็ใจก็เย็นง่ายสบายมีผลดีเคยมีใครถามหลวงปู่ชาทำไมพระยืนสองมือที่อื่นมือเดียวทำไมที่วัดหลวงปู่ชาสองมือหลวงปู่ชาบอกว่าที่อื่นมือเดียวจริงที่นี่สองมือเพราะว่าคนสมัยนี้ดือ้อมือเดียวไม่พอสอนต้องมีสองมือจะสังเกตในมือก็มีวงธรรมฉักอย่างนี้หมายถึงเป็นบางที่แสดงธรรมตามหลักพุทธประวัติที่ประเทศไทยก็ถือว่าเป็นบางสอนพุทธมันดาบนสวรรค์ดาวดิงเทศโปรดพุทธมันดาพรรษาหนึ่งพุทธเจ้าเทศโปรดพุทธมันดาก็สอนพระอภิธรรมก็เลยตามหลักก็เป็นบางนั้นส่วนพระประธานหน้าวัดก็เป็นบางปฐมเดชนามือยกใช่ไหมจำไม่ได้คิดว่าบางปฐมเทศนามือยกอย่างนี้แสดงธรรมหมายถึงแสดงธรรมธรรมชักภวัฒนสูตรสูตรครั้งแรกที่พุทธเจ้าแสดงธรรมทรงแสดงธรรมเหตุที่ตั้งอยู่หน้าวัดก็เป็นพระพุทธรูปที่เข้าถวายช่วงแรกที่เราเข้ามาอยู่ยังไม่มีที่ตั้งพระประธานก็เลยต้องสร้างที่ตั้งก็เป็นวิหารเล็กๆหน้าวัดไม่มีที่อื่นแล้วก็ทุกคนเห็นด้วยเพราะว่าสมัยนั้นที่นี่ยังเป็นฟาร์มเป็นสวนอางุนไร่อางุนเจ้าของยังอยู่ช่วงแรกที่เราเข้ามาอยู่เขายังไม่ได้ย้ายออกทุกวันก็มีวัวเดินไปเดินมามีคนมาซื้อเหล้าไวน์มีอางุนคนมาเก็บอางุนมีเครื่องมือคอุปกรณ์เกี่ยวกับสวนอางุนเราก็นุกเอ๊ะดูไม่ค่อยจะเหมาะไม่ค่อยจะเป็นวัดเท่าไหร่พอดีมียอมที่เมืองไทยยอมชายลายกับยอมมอริสเขามีศรัทธาถวายพระพุทธรูปบางนี้ส่งมาทางเรือแล้วก็มีพระเชื่อทานุตโรเป็นช่างไม้เก่งมีฝีมือนั้นก็เลยสร้างวิหารหน้าวัดแล้วเราตั้งองค์พระประธานตรงนั้นวัวก็ยังเดินไปเดินมากินหญ้าอยู่คนก็ยังมาเก็บเงินอยู่แต่พระพุทธรูปคุมไว้ใครเข้ามาก็เริ่มที่นี่เริ่มคิดนี่ที่นี่เป็นวัดหรือเป็นอะไรจงกระทั่งช่างที่มาติดต่อเรื่องอางุนฟาร์มอางุนจอดรถยกมือไหว้ก็มีก็เห็นว่าโอ้ก็ได้ผลดีเผยแพร่ภาษาศาสนาได้ดีคนที่ไม่ได้เป็นชาวพุทธเข้ามาก็รู้สึกสบายใจแสดงความเคารพทำให้สถานที่เย็นสบายก็เลยได้ผลดีก็เลยเก็บไว้จนปัจจุบัน
There was a question about two of the Buddha statues in the monastery. The first is this one, the standing one. Um, why do we have a standing Buddha in this hall? So I said the history of this standing Buddha, uh, the idea really came from recollecting Ajahn Chah because in his monastery, in his Ubozata Sima Hall, um, they have a standing Buddha. Uh, it's a dark colour and a different artistic style, but it's the same. It's tall, standing with two hands raised. And this Buddha, historically, it's a Buddha teaching Dhamma. And you see there's two wheels, wheels, Dhamma Chakra wheels in each palm of each hand indicating the Buddha is teaching. And many people feel it's a good Buddha to have in a meeting hall where many monks, lay people come and sit. As we sit here, the Buddha is both teaching and calming everyone down. So two hands calming everyone down. So it's a place that everyone feels calm and peaceful. And the Buddha statue helps to do that for us when we look at him, re re reflect on him. Ajahn Chah's own explanation was, when they, they asked him, why does the Buddha have two hands up like this? And the person who asked him said, mm, everywhere else you see there's just one hand. Why here two hands? And Ajahn Chah said, because these days people are so stubborn, one hand isn't enough to teach them, they need two hands. So that was Ajahn Chah's explanation. Um, it's a teaching Buddha. It's actually, if historically, it's the Buddha teaching his mother in the heaven realm for three months. He, every day he was in the heaven realm te teaching his mother, and that's where the they say the origin of the Abhidhamma, the third of the main. Buddhist groups of Buddhist scriptures comes from from the teacher teaching over the Buddha teaching his mother and this mudra is said to be that the Buddha statue at the front of the monastery was one of the first Buddha statues offered to the monastery by a couple a Chinese couple live in Bangkok and Morris and Chai Lai they had a faith to send us a Buddha statue in a boat and that Buddha statue is representing the Buddha teaching the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta the first teaching explaining the Four Noble Truths the very first teaching the Buddha gave so it's the first thing you see when you come in the monastery the first teachings and we put it there Partly practical reasons because we had nowhere else to put it. Because when we moved into this property, we didn't have this hall and the kitchen building we didn't have. That was still the winery. We just had that small house which hadn't been converted. So there was nowhere to put the Buddha statue. So it was obvious we needed to build at least some kind of a roof and place for it. So we thought if we build at the front of the monastery, when people come in, they will know it's a monastery because in most people's minds, this place was still a farm, uh, a winery. And every day there were cows wandering around where you're now camping. 
cows would wander and eat the grass and there were grapes everywhere and people would come in and buy cheap wine all kinds of things going on which were nothing to do with Buddhism and the Buddhist monasticism so it seemed like a good simple way to remind people they're coming into a monastery when we first moved here and we were quickly uh, to say um, felt that we'd made the right decision when one of the truck drivers coming to the deliver something to the owner of the winery he stopped and he got out and he said is that a Buddha and someone said yes and they put his hands up in Anjali and he was very happy and so I think most people appreciate having a Buddha statue there just to remind them this is a monastery it sets the right atmosphere and uh, I guess as long as the wooden Vihara survives then the Buddha will stay there Oh, well, another quest, part of the question I forgot. Who are the other statues of? We have Sariputta and Moggallana, two standing ones with hands in Anjali, the leading disciples of the Buddha. Then the dark statues down below we have on that side Lumputuat. Lumputuat is a monk, a very famous monk in Thailand. He lived about two or three hundred years ago and he did he had a very a vital role in refreshing revitalizing um, Thai Buddhism he was both a great scholar and a meditator and a very wise monk and he did a lot for inspiring the Thai people in their Buddhist practice and Many teachers have said he's uh, an incarnation of Maitreya Buddha. So Lumbutua one day will become Maitreya Buddha. That's what the legend has, has it. The next monk along sitting with his fists like this is Somdet Dao, another very famous teacher who lived about 150 years ago in Thailand. He's teacher of Rama V king and great meditation master and his famous mudra sitting with his fists like this it's a dhamma teaching the word for karma in Thai is gum and the word for fist is gum gummu so fist symbolizes karma and right fist good karma left fist bad karma just for symbolism. So right fist on left fist meaning good karma, keeping bad karma in check by being on top. So you want to keep your good karma on top of your bad karma or you abandon bad karma by doing good karma. So that's his teaching. He's reminding you to do good karma and not do bad karma. And this monk here is Lumpu Man, Sajjan Chas teacher and the sort of the famous founder of the modern forest Thai lineage and many many enlightened disciples 
And then we have Ajahn Chah himself at the end. So uh, these were all offered and seemed um, appropriate to bring some back up when we started this hall. Need some uh, good energy, so I invite the, uh, the teachers to come and sit here to inspire us and remind us of uh, their good example and their good teachings. Uh, all of them have many good teachings, not all translated into English, but they do have many good teachings which are still with us. So maybe sometime I'll be able to uh, pass on, relate to some of their teachings. Begini Lumbo, Prat Seyrup, Gomi Lumpu Tuat, Somdeto Lumpu Man, Lumpu Cha. ลุงปุถุอดโยมก็คงจะรู้จักก็ตามหลักเข้าถือว่าเป็นพระศรีอริยเมตรัยในชาติหนึ่งผู้มีบารมีบ้ากมากเป็นพระโพธิสัตว์
ก็โยมก็คงรู้แจกพระพุทธเจ้าก็คงจะมีทุกบางก็มียืนนั่งนอนแล้วแต่โอ้ในเมืองไทยมีเยอะแยะเลยมีมีให้ไปตามโบสถ์โบสถ์โบราณโบราณมีเยอะเลยในกรุงเทพก็มีอีกหนึ่งคำถาม This monastery is a very beautiful and scenic clean place on earth Scenery at different time of day or season sometimes swept me off my feet. Is my mind under the spell of delusion of sights? One feels peaceful and tranquil, surrounded by the pleasant mountains and hills. However, Ajahn's repeated teachings of impermanence bring to mind a touch of sadness that this feeling too will not last. Pleasant feelings about pleasant places and memories will also pass and disappear with aging and death. Is it possible for people to have retreat lifestyle, carefree outside monastery? Well, I would agree with you. The place here is very peaceful. And quite pleasing to look at the trees and the mountains. That in itself is not delusion. That's just the way it is. And we are very fortunate. This the land here was offered, and we're invited to come and stay here. So that's our good karma, our good fortune. And to have pleasant sights is your good karma if you're here, even if only for a short time. To see things that are pleasant to the eyes, give rise to a sense of peace and happiness. That's your good karma. So that in itself, there's nothing wrong with that, and it's not necessarily deluding. But with the arising of pleasant feeling, delusion can come if we're not careful, not mindful of that, and we can start to attach to the pleasant feeling and the sights which. Condition that pleasant feeling, bring up that pleasant feeling. So, of course, this place, just like other places, one could become very attached through delusion to it, and want it to stay like this all the time. If we had a lot of delusion, might want to own it for ourselves. So, some people they they go out and they they buy a whole mountain or buy an island or they buy a piece of land somewhere. And they can become very attached. It can be a subtle attachment, or sometimes a very obvious attachment. So that's something to reflect on, and see how we do attach to pleasant sights, pleasant experiences. And just establish mindfulness and know oh, this is a pleasing sight. It's like this, and then let go, because mindfulness is established, and we know it is still impermanent. You know the sight. It's not that you're seeing all the time, or that pleasant feeling is arising all the time. It comes and goes. The sight comes and goes. Your eyes sometimes are closed. Sometimes you look at other things. Sometimes you think about other things, and so on. So the sight and the pleasing nature of that sight is impermanent. 
but we can still appreciate it and it can be even a useful support in our practice to have pleasing places to practice that's that's a good fortune it doesn't have to be a, a bad thing uh, but like everything we will have to let go of it through death um, there's no way around that is there it's, the world is an impermanent place uh, our life is impermanent and so we should use that sadness maybe as a inspiration to keep practicing to see where we can free ourselves from delusion and attachment bring our mind to equanimity or calm peace where we understand pleasant feelings are like this pleasant places are like this but they are something that are, is impermanent and we will have to let go of it as far as living outside the monastery uh, we can do the best we can. Say if you're living at home, you try to set your home up suitable for one practicing the Dhamma. It's a place that is modest. You know, in our home don't have to go, go and acquire too many possessions, too many things, just enough to be comfortable. And try to use your place your your home as a place for practicing mindfulness maybe set up a buddha shrine somewhere where you can sit and meditate and chant listen to dhamma obviously if you still have to work more challenges you have to mix with other people who aren't buddhist or know anything about dhamma but whether someone is buddhist or not if you're practicing the dhamma they might start to appreciate that if you're practicing mindfulness and keeping precepts and developing loving kindness in your daily life people seem to respond to that over time and those people who don't well you try to minimize your involvement with them just deal with them as uh, as you have to according to your business your job so the important thing is try and bring Dhamma into your life at work, at home and if you get the chance maybe spend time on retreat times like this when you have free time, weekends or holidays and that will support your practice. Question, yeah? Could be, yeah, could be. If you, that sadness that arises when you say, oh, this pleasant place, it's, it's very peaceful, I'm very happy here, but it won't last. That's your mind seeing Dhamma, isn't it? Even the most, the Buddha said, even the most gratifying heaven realm where everything is pleasurable, very little dukkha in that heaven realm still is impermanent. It won't last. So if you think about that, hmm, even that happiness is, won't last. It's a little bit sad. That's, <coughs> that's insight, isn't it? Seeing the nature of existence, however pleasant or unpleasant, it's impermanent.
What does it mean to make metta for myself? How? Why do I find this difficult? Can I really be kind to others without this? given some short instructions on developing the meditation of metta. Metta literally means goodwill, kindness. So it's something we do need to develop. We should look at how we can develop it. If we find it hard to imagine the thought or the feeling, the emotion of goodwill towards oneself, and the Buddha gave the simile of the mother holding newborn baby. So whether you're a mother or not, just imagine that feeling of, we say, unconditional love, where you're just accepting that person. So in this case, it's yourself, if you're having metta for yourself unconditionally so you're not judging yourself you're not saying should be better should be different you're just accepting the way you are that you're one human being that you are worthy of uh, goodwill just as every other being in this world is because we all want to be happy you can think about it and some people are more you know, rational like to analyze it or think about what is goodwill what does it mean so you know, Ajahn Chah used to say well a mother the love for the child is displayed they will always feed the child before themselves they will clothe the child if it's cold before they clothe themselves They'll make sure the child is safe before themselves. So it's, it's that very natural but very automatic goodwill towards another being. But in this case, you're directing it to yourself. So you're trying, on the one hand, you're developing the feeling of metta. On the other hand, you're stepping back from your normal identification with yourself. A little bit uh, tricky when you explain it like this. And this is probably where the problem comes, isn't it? We normally identify with ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings, an image of ourselves. And often if we can remember all kinds of bad things, then we're not very happy with ourselves. Maybe we made some mistakes or we did something we feel bad about, feel guilty just feel that I'm not really worthy or not really worth it. We can have all kinds of self-views, uh, often very negative. But in this meditation, you're setting all of that aside. You're not judging yourself or identifying with those normal ways of thinking. You're, the modern word, word would be you're stepping outside the box and you're just treating yourself as one human being uh, and you are developing a sense of friendliness, goodwill towards yourself. 
And if you find that difficult, well, you have to work at it. You have to keep doing it until you can do it successfully. You have to keep learning to calm down, relax. When you think about the negative things about yourself, just keep relaxing, forgiving yourself, accepting the way you are, accepting the past, whatever's happened, <coughs> accepting your faults, your weaknesses. It's not that you approve of it all, but you're accepting you're still a human being that requires goodwill for good mental health, for self-confidence, self-respect. We have to start here. And before we can do that for anyone else, we have to be able to see how we can do it for ourselves. So if you can't find the goodwill in yourself or can't direct it to yourself yet, you have to look harder. You have to keep looking how can you send goodwill into your own heart, into your own mind. So true, the last part of the question, you do need to develop it towards yourself before you can do it successfully towards others. But in the practice, sometimes you can be creative. If you're really down on yourself and you think of yourself and you're just too miserable, then, okay, well, try and think of somebody you do love or find it easy to have metaphor first. <coughs> so it could be someone you... Uh, really respect, look up to, or somebody you love. It could be a partner, it could be a parent, a teacher, somebody that you find it easy to have goodwill for. Think of them. Get that feeling very clear in your mind. When that's very clear in your mind, then turn it around, direct it to yourself. One thing that might help, you should remember that to be born as a human being is already a very rare thing. The Buddha said it's a sign that you've already made a lot of good karma in the past to be born this life as a human being. So however bad things go, you maybe sometimes you blow it, you everything, make a lot of mistakes, doesn't mean to say it's all bad because you've obviously got a store of good karma. And even the fact that you come to practice meditation, you come to ask questions about metta like this means you've already got many good qualities. So one should also learn to, in a mature, detached way, to appreciate the good one that one has done without you know, glossing over the bad or getting too uh, exalted in one's view of oneself. One can appreciate we have good and bad. We've made good karma, we may bad karma, and use that reflection uh, you know, to balance up your view of yourself. In the end, when you practice metta, it brings the mind to a point where it's just calm, peaceful, and one isn't thinking at all, so that's where the sense of self disappears, so it's a, it can be a, a vehicle, a f stepping stone for vipassana meditation, where you just directing the mind with loving kindness to this set of five candors, to this body and mind, and then to others, and seeing each person is the same. Everybody, you know, everybody's the same. Anybody touches fire, they feel hot. 
So you pull your hand back when you touch fire. Everybody's the same. Everybody appreciates goodwill, metta. Even if they superficially reject it, complain about it, don't like it, deep down they are still, still appreciate it. Because goodwill, metta in its essence, it's peaceful, it's, it's something good for us. Uh, it's just sometimes we're not in a position to recognize it yet. We're not ready to recognize that. So you have to work on yourself if you need to work on recognizing it. Or if it's someone else, you might have to work on them until they recognize it. So it takes time. Ajahn Fun was known as a monk with lots of metta. Ajahn Fun was a disciple of Ajahn Man. He said he could uh, tame even the most stubborn person, very kind of angry, aggressive, grumpy. He could tame them, calm them down. He could teach animals, use metta on animals. So he's famous for staying. One year he stayed in a cave monastery where Jeffrey stayed later. But the very first year he stayed there, he was staying in a cave. In the next cave was a family of tigers. And in those days, tigers were big and they ate people. But they didn't eat him. He just had so much metta. These tigers just quietly walked past him every day, go out and do their business, walk back at night. In the, they go out at night, come back in the morning. And they didn't attack him or bother him at all. After that, he became very famous. People thought, oh, must have a lot of metta. In his monastery, when they had the meal, all the monks would sit in a line like we do. But there's one period where they also had a monastery cat. And the cat would live in the monastery and out of compassion, Ajahn Fun taught the cat to have some discipline and mindfulness like the monks. So when it was mealtime, you had monk, 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 novice monk, and a garakri in white, and then cat. And sit in the line with everybody. And they'd all have bowls, and the cat would have his little cat bowl. And they sit. And the cat, you know, cats can be trained. So the cat would sit very proud in front of his bowl. And Jen Fun was way up there, the long line of monks. And the tradition in Forest Monastery is you don't eat before the, the monk more senior to you has eaten. When you start eating the meal, the senior monk, you wait until he takes his first mouthful, then the next monk can take his mouthful, and then the next, and the next. So it can be a long wait if you're in a big monastery, a big community. So that's a training in itself. But Ajahn Fun trained the cat to wait. So the cat, no, can't eat yet. <laughs> you think how bad it is training people to do that, a cat. You know, he wanted to pour his food, and a bit, whatever they gave him, a bit of fish or something. No, no, okay. <laughs> and they trained the cat, and Jim Fun trained the cat to sit and wait until the Anagarika next to him had started eating, and then the cat could eat. Every day it had to sit and wait. So that's his metta. Metta is something you don't just, it's not just goodwill in itself, it can be directed for a good purpose. So teaching somebody the Dhamma is metta. Training a kid, training somebody is a meta. 
There was one time there was a problem with that because that monastery, as Geoffrey knows, had a lot of mountain, uh, monkeys. They lived in a big group on the side of the mountain and these monkeys are always very mischievous. And one time this one monkey kept hanging around the monk's eating hall. He's getting more and more curious, looking for food. Every day he'd be on a tree just in front of the cave looking. And uh, he could see the cat there. And this seemed to uh, get him thinking maybe, well, if the cat can get food, maybe I can get food. So every day the, monk would, uh, the monkey would come a little bit nearer and he'd watch. And the monk said, he'd come down and he'd watch. But he's a very cautious, because he's a wild monk, monkey, so he came down, cautious. And then he could see the cat sitting there, and the monks aren't harm, harming the cat, so he felt more bold. So after a few days, he came up really close to the cat. So he joined the line, the monkey. <laughs> but he didn't have a bowl or anything, he's just sitting there. And he didn't have a bowl, so everyone starts eating, and then the cat starts eating. And the monkey thinks, well, he's eating. So the monkey just reaches a paw out to get into the cat's bowl. Just as he gets his hand on the cat's food, the cat's sitting very mindful. cat goes, <laughs> and swipes the monkey's face. And the monkey goes, ah, and runs away, and he never came back. <laughs> so the cat still was a cat. Oh, do we carry on or do we finish? Uh, anyone tired? Not yet? Okay. Tanajan, lustful thoughts keep coming up. How to stop or avert them? Oh. The word the Buddha used for lust is karma raka or raka danha. And it's not com simply confined to sexual thoughts about sex. It's also, we say, lust for life, the very desire for life and for this body, attachment to this body, uh, the pleasure that can come with this body. So it's the very heart of our attachments and desires. It's the strongest one. And so it's quite normal, it will come up if you're practicing meditation. There'll be times when you notice you have lust in your mind, it will come up. So the first thing is to get the right attitude that it's not unnatural to have lust. But you want to start learning how to deal with it skillfully. So first level of practice is precepts, we keep precepts. So. If you keep the five precepts, if you're in a relationship <clears throat> where you keep to one person, your, your husband, your wife, your partner, and that's limiting your lust, isn't it? You don't keep seeking many multiple partners. You've already put a limit on your, your lust, even though internally you might have lust arise, you might see people you find attractive, think about them, but you won't cross the limit you keep to your partner or keep to your relationship. If you come into a monastery, then you keep the eight precepts. So that means no sexual activity at all. So very refined discipline that. So even if you're married or not married, 
you completely avoid all sexual activity. Um, so naturally, as you restrain the sexual urges like that by putting a limit on, well, they might come up. Sometimes they come up more because they don't have an outlet. Thing to do is to keep practicing mindfulness, and you use your precept first. And while well, I'm on retreat, keeping precepts. So you'll notice, well, how does lust arise? Well, it's either going to be through seeing, maybe, looking at a, maybe a member of the opposite sex, or hearing, hearing their voice, um, smelling. So hence we don't wear perfumes or deodorant or things in the monastery. Or more likely it'll be internal memories, fantasies, thoughts coming up. Especially if you're restraining your mind internally by practicing mindfulness, calming your mind down, well obviously there'll be times when memories just pop up and you see them very clearly. Uh, sometimes the more quiet you are, the more vivid the memory or the, the thought um, based on a memory comes up. And it could be a recent memory, so that's why we also practice restraint in the monastery. We don't talk too much, don't look too much. You restrain your eyes, your speech a bit, so that you're not stimulating uh, too much lust on a day-to-day -day basis, but still you might have old memories coming up and uh, leading on to fantasies, thoughts, lust in different situations, maybe just quietly meditating on your own and lust arises. So how are you to deal with that? have to establish mindfulness. If you can, you just drop it and go to your meditation object, go to the breath, go to your loving kindness, but probably not directed towards the object of your lust. If you have a thought about a member of the opposite sex, probably not the time to spread metta to them, the time to just practice equanimity, letting go and not think about that person. But if you can't successfully do that, then the Buddha recommended using what I was talking about this morning, which is a super sanya, and the recollection of the unattractiveness of the body. You might direct it to yourself first by doing these meditations where you're as if taking your body apart, piece by piece, part by part, looking at it, observing it, becoming familiar with each body part and its unattractive side. So if you're one who really likes hair, you find hair attractive, well, look at hair in your meditation. You ask yourself questions, investigate hair. Where does it come from? It comes from blood. Blood, protein cells feed the hair. What happens if you don't wash your hair? It goes smelly, greasy. Um, what happens to hair over time? It drops out, changes as we age, it goes grey. If you get a hair that's dropped out of someone's head, even somebody you might find attractive, but it goes into your food, not nice. The other day, somebody in the monastery, one of the monks was eating some food, he found a hair, he went, Oh, there's a hair. <laughs> That's a natural reaction to hair. 
in your meditation think of hair in that way, not you know, combing it, coloring it, how you like it. And you have to do that with each body part thoroughly. You go through the whole body until the mind starts to believe it. You know, at first it doesn't believe. You think of the body, hair, unattractive, skin, nails, blood, bones. And it'll go straight back to what you like. Oh, yes, think of the person again. The full person, the, the attractiveness of that person. Or yourself sometimes we are... And caught up in our own attractiveness, sometimes it's other people, the image of them, the memory of them. And the mind just won't believe it, so you have to teach it. You keep thoroughly doing this, keep putting the hair out, the skin, the nails, any bit that you like in that person, pull it out, put it on the, on the table in front of you, chop it up. Look at it, you know, see what it's like after a few weeks sitting there on the table. Yeah, you, know, you have to be creative, use your imagination. And there's no one way of doing this. You keep working at it thoroughly until your perception, your memory starts to change. And it doesn't mean to say you no longer see the attractiveness of the person. It means you now see the unattractiveness as well. You see the attractiveness, the unattractiveness, the result of that is it cools your heart down, your mind cools down and you feel more balanced, more at ease in yourself. Obviously this is a practice that can take years and it's not something you can just do like that. Maybe sometimes it works, other times it won't work and you have to work very hard. And lust is such a powerful feeling, you know, it's very, it can be very overwhelming physically. When lust comes up it can consume the whole mind and the whole body um, it leads us to act in so many ways isn't it? it's, a, it's something that prompts us to act so if you remember back to when you were young because most people here are not that young when you're sort of a teenager you act out your lust don't you, you act in certain ways in front of the opposite sex because of lust that's the real cause of certain kinds of behaviour you act in certain ways, try to impress, try to look attractive, and so on. That's something to reflect back on, isn't it? Reflect back on how lust, maybe it's currently, you still do the same, I don't know, but think about how lust affects our behavior outwardly, how it affects our body, the feelings that come up, and how intoxicating they are, the pleasure of lust. But then, Think of the other side, the impermanence, say the impermanence of feelings, lustful feelings. We have pleasure associated with lust, that's why we keep thinking of it. But each, each lustful experience or feeling is impermanent, it doesn't last for very long, it comes and goes. Um, the object of our lust is impermanent. Our own body is impermanent, the bodies of other people are impermanent. If you keep reflecting like this, the mind cools down and you start to have a, a, a different way of relating to your own body, the bodies of other people. Obviously to completely free yourself from lust, is, that's a very great thing, uh, very advanced practice. It's going to take some time and some effort, but it's worth it. You think about it, much of the world's suffering is coming from lust 
in the sense unrestrained lust, uncontrolled lust, or when people are not mindful of their lust, it leads to all kinds of um, harmful situations. People want to exploit each other, harm each other, get the better of each other because of lust, and so on. So it, it has, there's many, many benefits if we're willing to look at lusts through the eyes of the Dhamma and work with it. But we have to do that um, with wisdom, with a good attitude. It's not something you can just cut off, suppress, and blot out of your life. It will keep re-emerging. So you have to develop a, a good way, a wise way of dealing with it. The more one contemplates the impermanence of the body, then you know, lust is, is, is less important in one's life. The lustful energy, lustful feelings. Because you realize lust and the object of lust is going nowhere. It's not the path to true happiness. You know, true love between people is not based on lust, is it? It's based on metta, and based on kindness, friendliness, respect. Um, it's not just based on feelings, pleasant feelings. And you see people who practice meditation maybe over many years, then their attitude towards, particularly towards lust and then the objects of lust, say the opposite sex, changes. So Ajahn Mahabur says when you practice meditation, then the perception you develop is you see other people as like family. So if it's, you know, usually it's opposite, members of the opposite sex are the object of your lust, but you no longer see them as objects of lust, you see them as family. So if it's an older man or older lady, then they're like your mother or father. If it's a man or lady of similar age, then they're like your brother or sister. If they're younger than you, then they're like your younger brother, younger sister or your child. And that's the perception changing, isn't it? When you take lust out, your lust phase, then you just see other people as like relatives, friends, relatives, and no longer an object of lust. If you experience that, sometimes you experience that only temporarily, but if you experience that, oh, the mind is very peaceful then. It's, very, it's liberated from its lust. It's a very peaceful, happy experience because the mind is content. It's not seeking anything outside of itself, not seeking happiness in the body of another, not seeking happiness even in our own body. The mind is just content in itself. So also they symbolize, say, when you let go of lust, at least temporarily, then your mind enters samadhi. Because when your mind is in samadhi, it doesn't want anything. It's happy, it's content. So it's the last of the hindrances when you're developing samadhi, it's the last hindrance to fade away and your mind goes to one-pointedness. There's nothing more it wants. It doesn't need the body, doesn't need someone else's body, doesn't need anything in this world. It's just happy in itself. And that's samadhi, isn't it? When you just say breathing in, breathing out, one breath is enough. Happy with the breath or the sort of metta or you're focused on one object, focused on the Buddha and the mind absorbs into that, it doesn't want anything else. So that's when lust fades away, at least temporarily.
Last question. Gratitude, loving kindness towards people close to you and attachment. How to separate these? Mm. Very true, very difficult. Even a sodapanna will have attachment for their loved ones. That's how difficult it is to uproot this attachment we have for our family and friends. Only the anagami and the arahant will have completely uprooted their attachment for their, their loved ones. So in the time of the Buddha, Wisaka, the lady, she was a sodapanna from the age of seven years old. She practiced meditation for many lifetimes. And the Buddha taught her when she was only seven. She became a sodapanna. She's married at 16 to a very wealthy man. And she had 10 children over a number of years. And each of those children had 10 children. That's a lot of attachment. But she's a sodapanna. So she did already have this clarity, no more Sakaya Ditti. So she'd already removed the view, the deluded view of this body, these candors as a self, but she still had the attachment of, you could say, still had sensual desire, still had lust, and still had attachment to, say, family, um, as sense of bond, a sense of attachment, love um, between herself and her loved ones. That was still there. She knows she's not a... Um, she has the, the view has changed, no longer seeing this body as self, but this, the heart is still having its, 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 the binding force of loving somebody else and attaching to them. Not enough mindfulness and insight to let go of that yet. So when her most beloved grandson, I think his name was Datta, who she used to take to the temple all the time, help make offerings to the monks, she really loved and hoped, had a lot of hopes pinned on this grandson. He died. She was very sad and went to the Buddha. And the Buddha had to teach her, well, this is, this is the... When ignorance comes into our relationship with someone, we love somebody, a child, our child or our grandchild, there's a delusion there leads to suffering when we attach to that person. Because we haven't yet fully seen them as anicca, dukkha, anatta because we love them so much. We don't yet see that. The mind can't yet accept that. So we get sad when they die. So the Buddha said, well, you love all your um, grandchildren. She said, yes, I do. Said, Would you like as many grandchildren as there are in the town of Sawati? Sawati is quite a big town, thousands of people. She said, that would be great because she had genuine love for all her grandchildren. And the Buddha said, well, how many times a day does someone die in Sawati? Oh, it's a big city and probably quite often. How many times a week? How many times a year? Oh, often. 
So if you had as many grandchildren as there are people in Sawati, you'll be crying every day, every week, every year. She said, oh yes. The Buddha led her to contemplate in this way, to see the, the suffering of attachment. If you attach to something that is impermanent, when you're separated from that thing or that person, you're, there'll be sadness if you haven't seen the impermanence of that relationship and that object. So the, the reason it's so hard with the ones we love is because the love blocks the, the seeing of impermanence. Because love, if it isn't yet backed by wisdom, then it's, it's not yet fully unconditional. It'll be, my happiness is dependent on you being here and to this relationship continuing. And in one sense, the conventional sense, the ordinary sense, well, that's correct, isn't it? That's, that's right, we live as a family, we support each other, we love each other. But on the deeper sense, we will separate. We can't go on forever, we have to die. So when that separation comes, if we haven't accepted impermanence, then we will suffer, we'll be sad when somebody dies. There's a very deep, profound, reflection to that we have to develop on this so don't be too um, disappointed if you still get sad at the separation from your loved ones because it's very normal and even a soda panel will have shed a tear when their loved ones die or they're separated from them something to keep on contemplating that the real root of that Attachment is our attachment to our own body, our own senses, our own body. We attach to this body, then we'll attach to the bodies of others. So we love this body, we love somebody else. So only when we can completely see this body as an Icha Dukkha Anatta, then that kind of attachment will be ended or broken, and then we will no longer attach to, the, to others either. So I have to balance gratitude, loving kindness with wisdom. So we're grateful to our parents. We love them. We try to serve them, give them something back for all that they gave to us. But we have to use wisdom. We remind ourselves one day they will separate from us. Similarly, teachers, friends, all the people who we're grateful to and love in this life, we have to keep reminding ourselves one day we will be separated. And that helps to uh, ease the pain and help to accept the impermanence of these relationships. All the forest teachers say, all remind us when, say a teacher we love dies, Ajahn Chah died, Ajahn Man died, Ajahn Mahabur died. So don't sit around grieving, get up and meditate. So if you do have grief, then that's your, that spurs you on to meditate more because you can see your attachment. So say your parent dies, if you just sit there grieving, you, know, you, you won't be doing much good for yourself or then. If you say, oh, I have this grief, my parents died, I must meditate more, I must go off, sit meditation, walk meditation because of this grief, I must 
find a way to free myself from this attachment through the practice. That's the wise way to deal with grief, isn't it? Make it be a cause for you to further your practice. So, a lot of questions tonight. Probably everyone is a bit tired. Maybe we'll finish there. <laughs>